A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us yet. That point is through chapter 24 of Mistborn, The Final Empire by Brandon Sanderson. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. Crossland, today I am in a very odd mood. I don't know what what was up with me reading that intro, but I just like got done with it. I'm like, yep, that's done. And I'm like, oh no, we have to do the rest of the episode now. I should probably like continue from there you're in an odd mood i'm in an odd mood as well it's i mean it's a good mood i'm just i feel a little hyperactive today but we're rolling through it we're continuing we're vibing we're uh interacting with the universe (laughs) still uh so (laughs) today you could tell this is going really well so today is our sixth episode discussing mistborn the final empire by brandon sanderson and we are going to chat about chapters 20 through 24 but before we do that let's talk about what we're drinking pj what are you having today i've got a monte carlo kinda i (laughs) I made a little uh, a couple tweaks to it so it calls for rye i in my infinite drinking uh drink all my rye so i've got three ounces of bourbon one ounce of benedictine two dashes of peshad's bitters and the recipe i saw called for shaking it and i don't quite understand why i figured this is one that could be stirred pretty easily if anybody has a reason why this would be shaken instead or if you know crossland let me know but i figured it would work well enough to stir it and then garnished it with a cocktail cherry I don't know enough about Benedictine to know if there's like anything that happens with agitation with it. I doubt it. I don't know. It feels that feels more like a preference thing. That's fair to me. I've seen a couple of odd things actually lately when I've been perusing some cocktail instructions. And one such is like expressing bitters like Matt, like basically taking like a syrup and bitters and mashing those together first. Interesting. Yeah. And I'm like, huh, I wonder if there's like a real reason to do that. And I have not discovered if there is or is not. So did I do that today in my cocktail? Absolutely. I followed the instructions, (laughs) but I was like, I feel like a madman for doing this. So good deal. That would be the only reason that I could think shaken versus stirred. But that's fair. Yeah. A little bit of, I guess maybe that's fair. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Right. Maybe that's exactly how I feel about it, too. Uh, How's it taste? It's good. It's definitely bourbon forward. (laughs) three ounces of bourbon it's quite a bit it's good though i really like it i don't have hardly any experience with benedictine i have this little bottle of it that i've had for what over a year now i think i bought it towards the beginning of starting this this show with you and i've used it like twice so let me take another little sippy poo so it's sweeter than i would have expected it to be there's not a whole lot of extra flavor beyond the bourbon and the pishads that i'm picking up on i'm sure it's there i just don't know what i'm looking for but i didn't realize how sweet 
Benedictine was. Hmm. It makes sense that this recipe doesn't call for any sort of simple or anything like that. So anyway, I am following that up with a 2014 Old Guardian from Stone, which is their barley wine ale. So cracking back into those those cellar beers I've got. So we'll see how that held up after eight years in the bottle now. Hmm. Almost. Wow. Jeez. Yeah, that's quite a bit. Yep. What about you? What are you sipping on today? I am having a recommendation from one of our patrons voted on and recommended inside of the Patreon. Sophandrius the Howler recommended a cold brew old fashioned, and I found one online that was dubbed the cold fashioned. So we're running with that. That's a good name. Yeah, I, I liked it. I was like, okay, cool. This is legit. So two ounces of bourbon, one ounce cold brew concentrate. This note is very important. Uh, one ounce simple syrup, two dashes of bitters and orange peel. I went to the grocery store across from me beforehand, you know, going on our start time and whatnot. And I was like, oh, shoot, I got to pick up the cold brew, of course, for the, the drink. I grabbed standard cold brew as opposed to cold brew concentrate. And so I think it's a little bit weaker than it should be, but it's still good. It's just okay. not quite. I can imagine this cocktail being a little bit more bitter than it is. And would it be more bitter? Yes. Okay. But, yeah. Cold brew concentrate is very bitter. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. That said, I've drank cold brew concentrate straight. So, so, like, so I, have I. No, I, I'm <laughs> just saying like it's, you know, it, that said, it's still tasty, but it is a bitter flavor profile. Like coffee in general. I mean, coffee is a bitter profile. It's not more bitter than like a, a strong coffee, you know? I guess that's where I'm coming from. Maybe, maybe slightly, maybe slightly. Really depends on the concentrate. Okay. The ones I've had um, haven't been. Yeah. So. Yeah. Like chameleon concentrate, not overly bitter. Any like trade coffee concentrate going to be bitter, going to be that forward because they're expecting you to either use water or milk to water it down into the drink of your choice. Gotcha. So per per kind of like standard coffee or coffee. So I worked for those for those who don't know. I worked for a coffee company for like a year and changed from like liking coffee and enjoying coffee to being a total coffee snob and I love it. I love that about myself, but at the same time I'm recognizing I'm like no, it's better and I'm like oh shit, shut up. You don't so, need to be that way. Crossland says this like it means something, but Crossland was <laughs> a custodian at a Starbucks which is in a mall. No, I worked for a third wave coffee startup and went to a holy fuck ton of coffee shops and tried a holy fuck ton of coffee brewed in a bunch of different ways. But Jesus, it was wild. What a time. I could do a whole podcast on that job. Anyway, well, an episode at the very least. So to the point, though, this cocktail is good. I'd probably double the regular cold brew if you're using that versus concentrate, although I don't think it perfectly compensates. And if you're using cold brew, make sure it like not the concentrate, make sure it's the unsweetened because this could very easily go over on sweet. This is already mm -hmm. kind of towing that edge a little bit. So gotcha. That's why I think it needs a little bit more bitter or like I, I put an orange peel in. It almost could use some other citrus, but I don't know. I don't know what would work well <laughs> with coffee. Ooh, so I didn't want to push it. Other than orange? I don't know. Yeah, I know. That's where I was at too. And I was like, I don't want to add just straight orange to this. That seems a little bold. So I maybe, decided just to ride with it and maybe, maybe I'll experiment just, next time. Did you use orange bitters? 
I didn't. I do have orange bitters, but I used Angostura. Just I wonder if that'd be something that you could do to that to get a little bit more citrus into it. Yeah, that could work. It's just it just needs a slightly more refined profile, which I think you'd get from using the concentrate. To be honest, I feel like that's just the mistake, mm-hmm. um, and now it's trying to adjust for that mistake. But it's still good, and I will definitely probably. I think I will probably try to do this again next week, or maybe in a bonus episode to refine it to some degree with concentrate or practice. You know, kind of in between. We'll figure it out. I like how within that sentence you too. said, "I think definitely and probably all." all at the same time this is why i'm so glad that we have (laughs) descript to fucking clean up my bullshit (laughs) to that degree i am following up with new anthems trying not to sweat it's a simcoe centennial ipa it is fucking delicious it is just clean deliciousness i don't know how else to even approach this this is one of my favorite beers that i've had in a while yeah it is perfect i would hazard this is a nine out of ten that's impressive yeah, it's super good. I was kind of blown away when I opened it. I grabbed it on a whim. I know the new anthem makes good stuff. They make consistent IPAs. They make a lot of them in different varietals. This is like so good. So yeah, that's what I'm following that up with. Okay, cool. So generally we would go into last week's predictions, but we have no predictions to answer from the previous weeks, week over week. So we don't have any to talk about, but we are now collecting them appropriately, which is good. Yes. 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 Quite. They yeah. take up a lot of space. This is one of our longest documents. So it was, it's with, a very long document. It's a 10 pager and I didn't even put some of the quotes in here with that. Let's get into our chapters with that. We start off with chapter 20. I, I really think that this chapter is brimming with reflection right off the bat. We see more quick kind of, we see another quick passage of time. A couple of weeks have gone by since last time we were with Vin, but the way that Vin has spent her time further ingratiating herself inside of the noble community is very well summarized. But we also feel her kind of earnestness here with being held back from using her mistborn capabilities and the way that she kind of feels like she's being squelched in a way. What do you make of Vin's reflection here? This girl is coming off of a very serious injury that really should have killed her based on what we know about her. She obviously had the pewter just innately able to stop that from happening. But this was a mortal wound, more or less. And she needs that time to recover. But also, this is going to be a huge benefit, even within this chapter, we know, for example. But going forward, of her being able to really refine her skills as a noblewoman and focusing on that appearance and the social sort of situations that she's put herself into or that she's been put into not that she's put herself into so all in all i think this is very good for her even though it sucks that she has to kind of sit still for a little while from her perspective yeah yeah i think you're right and it feels like the very pj you're making such a grown-up assumption here for vin i love that your fatherly instinct that you totally have coming through I'm going to be real. I'm thinking about a lot about it from the perspective of my dog that just got neutered today. We have to get him to stay still for like two weeks. So, you know, that's what I'm channeling. Fair enough. That fits. <laughs> it's not good for you to run around. I know you want to, but you shouldn't. You shouldn't. He's got all these Pat. staples and shit. Like our other oh. dog didn't have these like complications and problems, but this mm. dog, his balls never dropped. So they had to like 
cut him open and really get in there to get him disarmed, I guess. So, (laughs) anyway, with that information, I'm going to have to move on for my own sanity. (laughs) Beyond that, she reflects on her becoming a noble woman and beginning to like her persona as Valette, as opposed to just kind of acting in it. And this is something we see a couple of times over the course of this week's reading. It's really an interesting change for her, I think, to come to this realization that she could like who she is, which is a thing mm-hmm. she's also offended of course with the idea that shan insults her among other things and this is kind of what sets her off thinking down that path so i'm going to use this as a platform to talk about human nature and i think this what we should be <laughs> taking away from this passage is that people are naturally stuffy pretentious douchebags and i'm not sure why we shun that within our society it should be embraced because that's what naturally people are destined to be right i feel like you're setting up a long pitch on how you feel about the rest of the content that we're going to be talking about this week so nah nah um, no that couldn't be it but i think what it does show is that people are very adaptive and people when thrust into a position can chameleon their way into that position and embrace it so it's cool to see scary yeah i I think it is cool it's unfortunate of course that she kind of feels this i don't know like she feels this other that she feels like it's a segregated part of her and she doesn't feel like she can just and she is play acting right like she is it's so weird is it real confidence is it a lack of self or is it you know how do you how do we measure this i realize that i'm stumbling through and half starting the sentence every time but It really is a difficult thing to parse. Like, how do we think about the side of her persona? I don't know if we think of it as a distinct side yet. I don't think it is. I don't think it's a separate personality. I think it's a character still. But much like method acting, she is getting very involved in that persona, in that character. Sure, sure. I I just also think that her own up-and-coming self-confidence seems to accompany the arrival of this character, right? And so that's an interesting, you know, she's kind of faking it till she's making it and faking it is also helping the rest of her life. Yeah. I she's think becoming she's, more trusting, but she's taking on the, the character of this very confident noble woman and she's learning that she can be confident and she can be outgoing and she's just kind of applying that to her own life. Taking what comes naturally to her into her own actual personality. Like, faking it till you're making it. That's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That seems to make the most sense to me. I, I agree. So we landed somewhere in the middle. Did we land anywhere? We don't we need to did. land. I'm not saying that, like, we need to fully settle, but we kind of have an idea at the very least. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we're not at the end yet, so we can't, like, really settle anything until we have all of the information, right? But, mm-hmm. so... Just a a little bit of speculation. So there's a reflection as the Pac-Man are loading and sharing a private conversation about Kelsier and how his legend has grown to almost supersede that of the rebellion. And my question for you is, do you think Kelsier is a good choice for a ruler? What do you make of their conversation about Kelsier? I don't know if he's a great pick for leader. He just seems way too well suited for being on the streets rather than like pulling the strings from a boardroom he's great at being a puppet master but he's not great at what what he's what makes him great about that is being able to be there and move around and be shifty 
And that's not the same sort of skill set you need to be able to pull the strings of a nation. But I don't know if there's a better candidate for rallying the people. He is charismatic and has a myth around him already. So as far as that goes, he's the one that has the best shot at actually rallying people behind him to start some sort of movement. It's just that doesn't mean he's going to be good at leading them. He's a great leader of this like small crew that all trust each other and basically act as equals, even though he's technically their leader. But I don't think he'd be good as somebody actually making decisions for an entire populace. Yeah. And I think that that makes sense and that I think that you've got a good perspective here. This, of course, is a prediction that I'm I'm setting up here for you as well. So yeah. I think that that's that's it's, a tough one to like boil down to a concise prediction. But well, I, I think you're basically saying that I don't think he makes a great pick for a leader, right? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Leader you know, of the movement as opposed to leader after the movement, I think, are two separate things. Oh, yeah, exactly. I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Hmm. 100% definitely understand where you're going for with that one so at Kelsier's suggestion we also get a moment between Marsh and Vin wherein he's training her in the use of bronze I really like how he gets specific in the theory of allomancy here and the ability to differentiate the powers she's seeing and experiencing through bronze the distinguished pulses allow for us to understand the description of metals better in the future so I really think this is sort of a genius seed that's being planted here because it, it this is a mostly indescript like you and I don't have great analogs without this information for what she's experiencing and this gives us an analog yeah yeah that's totally fair i loved the way all of these in-depth explanations of the metal like the allomancies like the specific allomancies i love the way it's they're described every time so i'm super pumped about it I think the fact that we get more in-depth understanding of bronze is super cool because it, like Kelsier seems to think, and as Marsh put it, a lot of Mistborn seem to think it's just kind of one to be glossed over. But I think this gives us more in-depth perspective of how truly unique and impressive Vin is based on how naturally this comes to her. So, I don't know. Cool scene. Very cool scene. I like the magic. I like the way magic is described here. You knew that to begin with. Like, you knew I would like this. So, I appreciate it. Well, there was... I did have this idea that you would like this, and I'm glad that you'd appreciate each of these. You know, it's fun that you predicted kind of early on that we were going to get the one skill at a time breakdown. And I think that we're at a point here, we haven't... We've seen most all of the skills, I think, by the end of this week with their various presenters. I can't think of any we're missing from anyone. Did we get anything really in-depth with copper? Copper? No, I don't think so. So maybe I don't think so that. either. Because that's but, something I actually posited on Twitter, and I never got a response. Nobody responded to it. Because I'm assuming yeah, no maybe there's... tell you the answers. Yeah. But to uh, me, it seems like nobody would be able to tell that they're a copper user. As like a ska misting, like there doesn't seem to be any external feedback to the use of copper. So that's mm-hmm. what I'm just kind of playing with in my head right now. And I'm sure 
things either do or don't come later. So you don't have to like pretend that, oh, that's interesting. Let's leave it at that. We can just move on. I get it. <laughs> all, all that I was trying to get to is that I think you predicted all of these moments kind of early on, and it's nice that we get them kind of piece piecemealed out. And I think often stories don't provide as much depth, even if there are these like training moments. And this, I think, is a great like this could be an info dump, right? But it doesn't feel like an info dump in the way that it's right. presented. And I don't know why that is. Because if you just strictly took this out of context, it should feel like an info dump. But I don't know if it's how he wraps it, like with like the beats around Marsh and Kelsier in their relationship, the the sibling dynamic relationship. And maybe if that's part of the reason that this doesn't feel info dumpy or that these don't. But it is it's interesting. They're always shrouded in some kind of action. I think it's because Vin is simultaneously a very important main character of this story and also, to a certain extent, the stand-in for the audience. It's not just one mm-hmm. or the other. So we get sure. these very important character beats on top of this info dump for the audience that makes sense for her character as well. And it's just masterfully like blended into itself. And I, I, I think that's why it doesn't feel oppressive with the amount of information they're dropping. It feels natural because she has to learn this. And she's interested in learning it so that we get it from the perspective of somebody who's eager to learn while also she's interested in the person that's teaching her. It's just super well done. It's a lot of different perspectives that are overlapping into a single character. Yeah. And it is wondrous. I do really appreciate it. It's impressive, man. Like it's super impressive. I mean, I guess part of this is, too, that, you know, you don't have wide experience with novels or novellas and and the like. I'm just saying. Are you claiming to me that I don't read much? I'm claiming that you might also not know what bad writing looks like. (laughs) I'm going a step further. I've written stuff before, so I know what bad writing looks like. (laughs) That's, I mean, yeah, that'll do. That'll do it, right? Yeah, I, I feel you. To the to the point that we were talking about a little bit here with Marsh and Kelsier and their relationship, I, I think that the conversation is a really great one upon Vince kind of prompting because she's trying to dig at that relationship kind of like she was earlier w- between her and Kelsier when she was thinking about Reen and kind of that. What do you think about Marsh's reflection on his relationship with Kelsier? I think truly, especially given the scope Looking at it through the lens of Vin and Reen, having mm-hmm. that sort of side-by-side view, Kelsier and Marsh's relationship seems really kind of standard and relatable in comparison. They're not super close, but they don't hate each other. They're, they, they do love each other to a certain extent, but they're not just, they're not super touchy-feely, close family bonding kind of deal. They argue, they bicker, they don't see eye to eye, but it's like what family is, what family doesn't have a certain air of that to it. Some more than others, but I feel like it's it, at the very least relatable, if not straight up normal. Maybe a little bit more complicated hardships and trauma than a lot of families, but you know, their actual interpersonal relationships don't seem that far out of like normality compared 
to Vin and Reens, which is entirely just dripping with abuse and problems. So, yeah, yeah, sorry. No, I agree with you. I think that you're right. It is kind of a more normal relationship, and it does seem... It's very interesting, A, like the Marsh that we're presented with here, right? Iron Eyes and and whatnot, his nickname and kind of, oh, I can see how you were the leader and, you know, comparing. He's like, yeah, I definitely killed people, but with purpose. And he's like, I guess Kelsier actually has changed. And it does feel, it does, obviously, it feels like a better relationship than the one between Vin and Reen. But it, it also makes you wish, in the same way that she does, that she could have that relationship, like how much better they would have been together if they would have worked together as opposed to mm-hmm. him feeling the need to teach those lessons. It's just such a, it hurts for her. Yeah, it does. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then you throw in right after that, you throw in this whole scene about Vin's childhood with her mad mother and Fuck. it's really haunting, dude. Yeah. God, haunting is true. I mean, like, messy, violent, uh, just... This is one of those moments in Branderson's writing that I, I, like, really appreciate how kind of spare it is, but that at the same time, I almost wish for a little bit more. Like, my brain fills in the details pretty well, and I can imagine if this were adapted, how this scene would expand fairly easily as we're flashing back on the, the childhood of Finn. But this is a moment where... You visualize this single paragraph of like violence and it could take up many pages in theory. It could. And because it doesn't, I assumed that there will be more in the future Mm -hmm. and the more in the future might not entirely line up with the version of events that Reen has cemented into Vin's mind. Hmm. Like not necessarily like, I think it's probably pretty true and pretty clear that her mother was mad and maybe true that her mother murdered her kid sister, baby sister. But there there was something to that paragraph that made me like think this isn't a true memory of Vince. And this is entirely relying on reports from Reen as she was growing up about what had happened and how she was rescued. Yeah, there definitely is a sentence in there that kind of portrays this as maybe with like a question mark around it a little bit. I do the detail of the earring as well. This being like the earring, it kind of makes you question like why Vin hangs on to the earring if it's this horrific memory, but maybe it's because it's her attachment to her mom that she knows nothing about really, you know, to to your point, she doesn't even fully remember this. I like the fact that you use the word cemented in her mind, like Reen cemented this in her head. I think that makes a lot of sense as to how to describe it. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm hopeful that we'll go back to this event in more detail, maybe from a different perspective of somebody else that might remember it somebody else that might have knowledge of it that wasn't reen i don't know that's my only that's my only thought as to why it'd be so sparse here other than her not wanting to share more but it didn't seem like she didn't want to share because we're in her head here it wasn't Mm -hmm. like i hold back and only tell him what he needs to know in order to make a connection it's like she's being sparse because that's the information she has Right, right. Oh, yeah. It's tough. I just can't wait. Can't wait for can't wait for more there, but like her relationship to your point, like it's 
man, it seems fraught. And that seems like just an awful circumstance. With that, we move into chapter 21. We start off here, of course, with a little logbook entry, as it's referred to now, as opposed to journal, so we can call it the logbook. But the hero of ages shall not be a man, but a force. No nation may claim him, no woman shall keep him, and no king may slay him. He shall belong to none, not even himself. And I think that this is interesting in its own right, but to follow that up right afterwards, we begin to see further words from the Lord Ruler's Logbook, as it's called, to follow this that Kelsier is reading. Given the context we've received since reading the beginning of the story, what do you make of both this new little section that we get and the section that we see repeated here that we read, you know, scattered across chapters? So, what, like, this is part of the prophecy, Right, that the Lord Ruler fulfilled, supposedly. Yeah, the Hero of Ages. Yeah. Thing. And this passage, is it this passage? Keep <laughs> in mind that right here, there's that whole section on 342. There's that whole section right underneath that has other components in it. Right. I think I'm confusing myself. Which is kind of about the prophecy. Yeah, there, there's just... There's a point at some point, like, I, I can't remember if it's right here or if it's later on in this section that we're reading that Kelsier talks about how he never thought about the Lord Ruler being mortal until, like, reading this logbook. Was that here or was that later? That is right here. Okay. Yeah. It makes sense. To Kelsier, to Kelsier the Lord Ruler was less a man and more a creature, but... This was fascinating because he, yet the person presented in the logbook seemed all too mortal. He questioned, pondered. He seemed like a man of depth and even character. Yeah, it's fun to have our characters looking at this from the same perspective we are now. You know? Yeah. I like how this blends into itself. Self-referential to a certain extent. Now we know that they have the information that we have. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like reverse dramatic irony. Okay. So I have to ask you now, because we have very obvious, tangible proof that these passages are from the book that they now have, which mm -hmm. this is the first time, like, this is the first contextual confirmation of what we're looking at, correct? Pretty much, yeah. When did you come to that realization? The assumption? The, 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 the assumption, yeah. Was it before or after me? Because you know when I did. I feel like I had ideas around... So immediately, I... So immediately upon like reading it, I was like, okay, this is really interesting. This is an interesting story angle. And I feel like I probably like mostly thought I nailed it around like chapter 7, chapter 8. If that makes sense, like okay. the third, our third episode equivalent. And I think you got it on the fourth or between the third and fourth. So pretty close. I don't feel like I was that far ahead. It feels it is meant to be a question and it, it lends itself to the question of like, is this written in the future? Is this written in the past? And then you start to get mm -hmm. more solid clues that's written in the past around that, like chapter nine, 10, 11 point. You can't really like fully put it together quite. Yet. Right. Cool. Sounds good. Yeah. No, so I, I was just I curious. What you thought of I it. think you were on it. Let's just put it this way. You had some sort of like vague idea that I think you referenced in like episode one or two when you're just like running through. You're like, eh, blah, it could be this. And the no PJ zone went off like a dinging bell. Like, how the fuck did PJ <laughs> make an assumption? It's like and someone else said he's not going to remember that. I don't. I <laughs> what I remember is assuming it was Vin 
I was assuming we were meant to think it was Kelsier, but I assumed mm-hmm. it was Vin. And a big part of that was the audiobook. And <laughs> the voice used your soul of the narrator's voice. Yep. Yep. I was. Yeah. So never trust a voice actor. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> no, they're all bullshit. <laughs> Just making shit up as they go along. Just kidding. So yeah, I like the mortal reflection that you make there in terms of, you know, kind of on Kelsier's part and kind of the conflict that he has internally. Yeah. So it's also interesting to see the juxtaposition. This is something that Kelsier kind of ruminates on as well, but the juxtaposition of the Lord ruler before Ascension and after no, like we, we see him in this logbook as this character, this person of whom, doesn't seem cruel from the text he seems to be a good person which you know i said kelsier kind of lends credence to but clearly that's not where he is today yeah definitely there's clearly a difference very clearly so my question i guess is was there some sort of corruption or possession is he like a conduit for something more and like his his body is being used for something or is it more mortal than that and this is how he always was and this sort of power and influence is allowing that sort of side of him to emerge more and he's allowed to express it more i don't know it's really interesting and i wish we had more than paragraph at a time with this dude too bad I'm just kidding. We obviously have more passages to go. You know, if we consider the fact that each chapter has one, we've got a decent amount of time left with with the Lord Ruler before. I feel like we're going to get, by the end of the book, no, we're not, but by the end of the series, we're going to get a point of view from the Lord Ruler, and we're going to see him wake up, be groggy, get his morning coffee, take his daily shit, like... We're going to see the nitty gritty in the shit room. He's going to read his little book about what he did in his past life. Until you made that post, I completely forgot about the shit room. Oh my God. You said it so many times. I had to edit it because it was said so many times. I was just like, okay, a couple of poop jokes. This is four times now. And I just keep cutting it back. It's uh, poop room. Pooping room. It's pooping I kept room. all the pooping rooms once. I was like, that's the good one. That's the one to keep. Yeah, no, that would be, that's a very interesting observation to say that we'll get a Lord Ruler perspective. And I really appreciate the idea of it also being like just his normal day. <laughs> his wake up. Make the coffee, go to the pooping room, enslave a bunch of people. Do you think he drinks his coffee in economics. the pooping room? Probably. Don't you? Probably. It's, it's a direct to poop pipeline. All right, we've talked way too much about <laughs> shit on the show lately. Um, <laughs> the only thing that could be more <laughs> direct would be like a Chipotle burrito on the toilet or Taco Bell. I think Taco Bell's the one. Yeah, all right. All right. Holy shit. Okay. So Holy we then shit. meet up with what? We Lord are then Ruler traveling I'm, I hate you. We're then traveling by canal, which can I just say like also canals as a function of like travel in this story is super unique. Like the fact that we're not just on a road with a bunch of horses and like carriages and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Instead using canals to like move everything around. Like that's yeah. also a strangely unique angle. It is. It's like Venice and the Rocky Mountains. 
we then meet up with the army <laughs> Captain Demu, as well as General Hammond, of which I love that they call him Hammond because I just Hammond makes me giggle each time, even though it's a nice formal name. I just I like Ham so much that I can't not. And we get also more time with Yeden as well while inspecting the army in the north. But we also get a reflection on the pits of Hatson as Kelsier climbs down the crack into the caves below and what Kelsier had to do to survive the pits themselves, namely fetching a geode a day, his arms being scarred and scraped as he went in and out. And who I don't remember if this was a, a an official guess. I think it was. I think it was. I think it was an official guess. So I think I get to drink for the fact that I guessed that there was a methodical torture behind his scars and he just kind of rolled around in the dirt a bunch wait a second <laughs> let's clarify i think that this is kind of a methodical torture before before but, you go ahead and take a drink no i i agree this is a torture this is a methodical torture but this is not methodically intentionally placing scars upon his body yes okay all right i was under the thought that he was in a chair and they were like very intentionally cutting him hmm. with very fine scalpels and tools. Gotcha. Gotcha. Isn't it interesting that we, we get this kind of context over the course of the chapter, but the dissenters, the, those that are need to be jailed or, you know, thrown away are basically also the only ones mining the only ATM mine in the entire world. Yep. Yeah. And hmm. I don't know. You'd think maybe, maybe it's just that rare. It's just so rare to have any sort of Mistborn in general that it'd be so incredibly rare to have a Mistborn dormant, like an unbroken, unsnapped Mistborn that was also a dissenter. That, like, it's just the perfect storm, essentially. The confluence, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's fucking incredible. Anyway, did we have a question that was posed? We were just talking about the oh. pits. You know, we did. You we were like just talking the about the pits. Yin. I still haven't drinking yet for my improper guess yeah. from like basically episode one or two, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I think it's one or two for sure. But we were, we were talking about the caves and the cracks and kind of crawling down into that. So at the recommendation of Tolson, our Linux graybeard webmaster, I very quickly binge watched all of Ghost Town Living. So. I've been thinking a lot about mining and like crawling around in mines lately. And that shit was hard when it wasn't intended to be torture. So this is fucking brutal. These descriptions mm -hmm. are horrifying. Yeah, it's, it is a brutal thing to see. After inspecting the entrances, of course, which I think are really interesting too, the cracks in the ground that they have to crawl through as opposed to like general cave entrances, like they're just cracks and you have to like crawl down into them and kind of maneuver your, your way through is very interesting but after they make it down kelsier has a number of different like very ptsd like reactions as he's walking around but he ultimately discusses with ham the goal of the visit which is not just to inspect the army but to hand off the reins of the army to yeden to have him be in charge of the sort of revolution and rebels that you know he should be leading for all intents and purposes yeah, what was interesting to me at this point was hearing kind of the reluctance from Ham to pass on the reins. He gained this sort of personal sense of responsibility over the position, and he knew well he he well knew the whole point 
but I don't know, got invested. And that was kind of cool. And that makes total sense from his character because we jump into like philosophical points pretty quickly from there. Like he, he is definitely a thinker and definitely somebody who reads into situations for the better. And for that reason, definitely got invested in his men, in his people, in the people that he was temporarily kind of leading. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I thought it was cool. Yeah. I, it feels very cool and it gives him a little bit more agency, especially since Eden has been, you know, a good character that's been warming up to us over the course of time, but he hasn't really had the spotlight outside of his place inside of the rebellion. Ham, you mean? Well, I was talking about Yeadon being like handed the reins, but I I understand as well your reflection on Ham. Sorry. I said he, and I was talking about Yeadon in addition to your reflection on Ham. I, I think that it is interesting to feel like he feels responsible and we get a little bit more about the kind of the interesting dynamic that Ham feels relating to people a little bit at the end of this week's reading when he's talking about the garrison, like he can't fake anything. He is himself. So he doesn't yield another persona. He doesn't pretend he just is himself everywhere he goes. And so he kind of carries that, that personality. He's not hiding anything, which is fascinating. It also makes him super relatable and a very honest character. Kelsey even goes so far as to say that he can only trust ham and breeze out of the crew. Yeah. You know, it's, that's interesting. That is interesting. Really, he says really trust. Which, to me, there's a couple of very curious people left out from that. And that docks in for one, but more importantly to our conversation from last week is, fuck, why am I... clubs? No, 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 no. Why am I fucking blanking on this right now? Sezed. Oh, Sezed, yeah. Is is Sezed technically part of this crew that he's talking about? Or does he not technically fully trust Sazed? I, that's interesting. I wonder, I don't know if Sazed counts as a part of the crew who really is a part of the plan, you know, in full. Sazed's more of an attache to Vin, if that makes sense. It seems, currently, you know? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So, I think he trusts him. That also, like, leaves the interesting question about Renew, right? We we did leave out Renew, but Renew seems to have some sort of supernatural background that maybe precludes <laughs> him from that sort of... Uh, sure. Maybe we don't need to worry about him because he's magic. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I like that idea. We get even more pit details here about like the PTSD that Kelsier experienced around how Kelsier had snapped breaking when Mara gave him a geode when she claimed to have two. And that's just a massive pain because in many ways, like Kelsier wasn't supposed to live because and, and she like ultimately chooses to sacrifice herself for him. And it's just there's an interesting component there. I just wanted to reach in and feel your feels and your thoughts. Well, reach away and feel my feels. That fucking sucks, man. But I'm curious if that's why he doesn't hold any sort of animosity towards her as far as the betrayal goes or the perceived betrayal goes. Because she essentially sacrificed herself for it. And like that's more shitty feelings, but maybe it's a shitty feeling that makes up for the previous shitty feeling. You know? Yeah. 
maybe it proves to her, to him that she was loyal to him the entire time, or even if she wasn't, it made up for the fact that she betrayed him, if that's what actually happened. It, it does pose that question, and it feels like it's kind of left to interpretation to some degree right now. You know, it's not like we have a clear answer from Kelsier. We're just being provided this information. But I agree with you. It does kind of leave us with that feeling of, you know, especially given what we know about Mare and kind of previously, it feels like that almost like she's not like she's taking an out and out, but she feels like she had to make it up to him, to your point. So that hurts, though. It still doesn't feel good. <laughs> Hey, whatever the reason behind it, she sacrificed herself for Kelsier. Mm-hmm. Right. Which could have been an absolutely worthless sacrifice, you know? Like, she could have, he would have just had to go down in the pits again, like, next week, in theory, and, like, keep digging stuff out. She didn't know that he was a Mistborn because he snaps after that, you know? Like, right. I mean, I think it's that selfless makes the, to let him live, but. I think that's the part that makes it more emotional and less mm-hmm. utilitarian. You know, she does. She doesn't know yeah. that he's this not quite prophetized, but clearly very important character. He's just did some. You mean, did you mean prophesied? Prophesized. That's what I meant. Yeah, prophesied. Yeah, not prophetized. Yeah, yeah. Like she didn't know that ahead of time, so that makes this sacrifice entirely emotional and not utilitarian. Yeah, I I think that makes it a stronger case for her maybe proving to him that she wasn't actually betraying him in whatever that Mm -hmm. slight was or whatever actually happened. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely makes a ton of sense there. And it definitely it feels like it it is, to your point, exactly trying to do that. It's exactly trying to make up for whatever it is that she actually did betray Kelsier, be it her thoughts the mind reading that we talked about previously with the lord ruler or what have you so yeah whatever it was yeah i love ham's little philosophical debate that he starts here with Kelsier, and it's one that perpetuates itself it's a conversation that we actually get to have this entire week it's why i broke up the chapters the way that i did this week is because this is a contained argument in its own right and we see a lot of different perspectives here so Ham kind of kicks it off for us thematically for the week with the question of, are noblemen any different from Ska? And this is something we're going to be talking about throughout this entire week, providing a little bit more, you know, depth into this question. But what were what are kind of some of your surface thoughts, especially given just the idea of are they any different from Ska to start with? All right. I don't know if I don't know if surface thoughts works here. No, I mean, dig in for sure. I, I think this is a really important question to bring up. And what it does for Kelsier, I think, or what it could do for him if he takes it this way, is make sure all the decisions are made without gaps in understanding. This allows him to think about the, I don't know, worst case scenario in the idea that no, the noble class are actually physically and mentally different from the ska. Like if that's the case, he can approach it in the way that like, I know this, but I still want to pursue this because I still think it's right. There, he can't get dropped. Like there can't be dropped this bomb of information of like, Oh, you're physically different people. He can still have that in his mind and still wrestle with that concept before continuing his plan you know 
That's interesting. Yeah. I don't think that was Ham's intention, but I think that's an interesting perspective to look at it from. It is, it is almost a tangential observation. He's like, regardless of the answer to this question, this still makes sense to do because people are being treated poorly under the system. Right. Yeah. Even if Ham is not Ham's completely right, he's not positing anything, but even if what Ham is suggesting, the worst case scenario is that they are entirely different species. Given that context, I'm still going to do this. And I, mm-hmm. I think it's important to have that knowledge and that thought process in making a, a big decision like that because he can't be blindsided with it later. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Is that it's one that he has to make in like he has to make a solid decision on and it has to be in good faith because otherwise everything that he's doing could be in theory for not but is it really not even then i don't think so i think he's still mm-hmm. fighting the good fight even if they are different species which is the point yeah and i mean they're not as far as we understand like i guess we don't technically know do we we don't have an answer to that no but i think that's i think that's a part of what the story wants us to question right And I think that that is the question that we're kind of interrogating this week a little bit that we'll continue to talk about. So we'll bring this up more a little bit later. But to kick off the conversation, I find that this is an interesting, you know, little start to the philosophical debate. Are they any different? And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's an interesting little bit. Kelsier, of course, rallies the troops together. And a part of the reason that he came up here as well was to give them a show because he's going to have to go into hiding for a bit uh, or be a little bit more reclusive and cannot be as outspoken and things like that. So part of the reason that he's here as well is to do, you know, one one kind of hurrah. So he begins basically by hand-selecting a member of the rebellion to single out and stir and cause a, a bit of a, a, a ruckus with. And so sex, he, basically. Yeah, kind of. I mean, he doesn't kill him. He should. I almost think that he should have because the guy, regardless, like believed it, believed what he was saying. And that's the interesting thing that we know about the Salamancy is that you're really just enhancing. You're not and or you're pushing very little and you're inflaming emotions that already exist for the most part. So it's not as though you are telepathically controlling someone to have different feelings. So you're just enhancing and building, in this case, literally rioting. So he's rioting the emotions of Bilge, and it leads to this really cool duel in which Demu, Demu is also selected as Kelsier's stand-in for the fight. What do you think about this whole like setup to the fight? First of all, just to, just to make uh, my own thoughts consistent, is it Bilge or is it Bilge? Is there an E you know, at that the might, end? I, there's not an E. I bet that was an autocorrect. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, Bilg. Or it might be pronounced Bilge. I don't know. I think it's still Bilg. Bilg. Anyway, it's clever, man. The way he tackles this is super fuck clever. And it also serves as our first really in-depth look rioting. We get that sort of symphony that we talked about a couple episodes with breeze of soothing and what was it was that an entire like team that breeze was in control of or was it yeah that he was signaling or before Yeah, because there were there was rioters within there too wasn't there yes rioters and soothers right 
So we see that, but that's sort of a top level view. This is a really kind of different perspective on rioting that we haven't seen at all before. Mm -hmm. And that was super cool. I think it's like the first time that we've actually seen rioting specifically. Right. Yeah. And I guess this is the sort of rare situation from Breeze's perspective where rioting is entirely different in outcome than soothing can be. Like he talks Mm -hmm. about how soothing and rioting can be used to obtain similar results. And I don't think you can obtain this kind of result from soothing, like, opposite emotions. Like, you, you have to elevate an emotion in order to get it to this level, as opposed to just stripping down the other, like, balancing emotions, if that makes sense. Yeah, soothing everything down to make to get this rise out of him would be a lot harder than just rioting the emotion up. Right. Right. To your point. Like, yeah. you, your degree of difficulty is significant between the two. Mm-hmm. maybe it's possible yeah. i'd argue it's possible but harder i think that's i think that's mm-hmm. exactly why the differences exist between the metals even though they're considered the most similar and adjacent of the metals right uh, even you know very similar to iron steel but you know it's they're almost interchangeable but not quite there's that little bit of nuance and this feels like that bit of nuance yeah and so being a misborn, he could also simultaneously suppress everything else he could make it even stronger if he wanted to. Yeah, he could definitely push this further. He could, yeah, he could soothe and smother other emotions to like really make this guy want to fuck him up. And that would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Over the next page, we get this really cool fight, though, between Demu and Bilg, in which Kelsier is very subtly controlling the fight <laughs> because of the armor and gear that they're wearing. And it's pretty fucking cool. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's pretty fucking awesome. He's a tricky man. And th- like th- yeah. this entire time, I was thinking about that like previous question that we came up, like that we had talked about and not explicitly because the question wasn't there yet. But like I was thinking about Kelsier and leadership in general. And like this ties into that previous answer in that he is so good at rallying support and manipulating a crowd. This is his strength entirely. This kind of situation, and it is not running an empire or running a country or running an army for that matter. This kind of deal is his strength. Trickery and small-time manipulations. Yeah, he's an incredible standard-bearer, but you don't want him to you know, be the one who sits in the chair. Yeah. It's an interesting quandary he finds himself in, especially because of how angry he gets right at the end here as right at the end of this chapter, when he's talking with ham, he says, it's my army. And that's just such an interesting, like little snapping moment for him. That's something that's almost directly out of one of the passages. I can't remember which one, but it's pretty close. And that's, uh, that's the one where that's the exact one that I'm thinking of when I remember wanting to have thought it was Kelsier, but pivoting and thinking it was Vin instead that was writing gotcha. these passages. Like, it was that sort of deal of my army. Kelsier, Kelsier. Plots behind plots, plans beyond plans. There's always another secret. What a way to end a chapter, too, by the way. There's always another secret. 
because that's kind of the way the story unfolds. It's like there's always the next thing and the next thing. And the it's so well done. So kicking that off, let's move into chapter 22. We start off, of course, with the logbook, uh, which reads, At first, there were those who didn't think the deepness was a serious danger, at least not to them. However, brought with it a blight that I have seen infect nearly every part of the land. Armies are useless before it. Great cities are laid low by its power. Crops fail and lands and the land dies. This is the thing I fight. This is the monster I must defeat. I fear that I have taken too long. Already so much destruction has occurred that I fear for mankind's survival. Is this truly the end of the world, as the many philosophers predict? What do you think? So this description of the deepness mm-hmm. makes me understand the other depictions mm-hmm. that like made me question why it was so ill-described. Like th- This is the whole Bigfoot is blurry thing again. It just is obscure. It is abstract. So you how, know it, how could you describe it? You know what it reminds me of specifically this passage, the smoke monster from a lost that's yeah, a little bit more physical, physical than this is. Yeah. yeah. But even that's something like intangible that they don't know how to, what to do, you know? So I, I, I think that I get what you're saying and I, I completely understand where you're coming from. I think the problem with that was that they had no idea how to approach it, but it wasn't like it was, an abstract idea that they were trying to fight. It was just not what they would technically or usually consider tangible. This is less, this is taking that to an extreme degree in that it's not contained. There's nothing physical about it, whether or not it's tangible or not. Like it, it is just basically the idea of a biblical apocalypse. Yeah, and I I don't think I don't disagree with you by any stretch there. But I'm what it, the comparison that I'm trying to compare it to a little bit is more the theory crafting side of the fandom towards the smoke monster. Okay, like the smoke monster is this, the smoke monster is that, and sort of the assumptions. And I agree with you. This is much more of a biblical apocalypse, though. Like there's this has all of the makings of the end times ascribed to it. Mm-hmm. Like there's a literal locust plague right here. Yeah, basically, right. I don't think even basically. I think almost explicitly. Well, it's not called a locust plague, but it does. It has the effect of yeah. a locust plague. Okay, that's what I mean. It's not. Yeah, you wouldn't call it a cloud of locusts. You'd call it a f- the fucking deepness. <laughs> I don't know what else to call right. it. No, no uh, specifically. Where is this? Three sixty-three. Yep. Just because I was thinking about. Crops fail and the land dies is what I'm referring to. Is that yeah, that right. point? I, yeah. All I'm saying is like a nuclear bomb can kill crops and land. Like it, it isn't explicitly a plague. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. It's not a locust plague, but it does have the impact of something like that. And it feels like it's kind of leaking across the landscape in the way that it's described because it seems also slow and indiscriminate i would say yeah i think that's the point Mm -hmm. where i don't see it as i see the crops fail thing in in land dies thing not as a like oh there's a single event that destroyed everything as opposed to a slow thing if it was a single event they would just say like everything got obliterated 
including yeah. land and crops. This seems Locust more deliberately so. Yeah, specific. I know. I know. I'm not okay. Yeah, I, I wasn't trying to say that it was explicitly a locust, but it was evoking that imagery for me. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Cool. We move from there to the bit of the logbook here that Vin reads us about the terrorist Pac-Man saving up their power in bracelets. And ooh, man, did this get your mind going? I mean, we're going to talk about it yeah. more in a second, but did this little segment, what were you thinking when you <sighs> stumbled across this? I'm so excited. I'm so ready to learn more about this shit. Like, yeah. Not a whole lot more specific, like more in depth than that. Like I want this. Yeah. And we'll get to it at least a little bit more in a bit here, but we've got a couple more things to talk to you before we get to Fuerca Me. So it's going to be, it's exciting. I love the little note here when she's talking about reading through the journal and she's got a lot of internal monologue about like reading and how it feels boring to her and some other things. But she comes to this conclusion that the Lord Ruler was far more whiny than any god has a right to be. And I fucking laughed out loud this yeah. time. I was like, that is the perfect joke. That's <laughs> so good. inside of the story. Yeah. Funny. So perfectly funny. Very Vin- now that she kind of is allowed, well, she feels like she's allowed to have a sense of humor and really be a person, be a character. We're starting to see these little mannerisms develop, and I think that her little witticisms are are great. Yeah. And we move from that, of course, to the interaction with little shy spook. And I think it's a good little interaction here wherein, you know, Docs has just come off to drop the weapons with spook. But in addition, he gives her this little handkerchief, a really unassuming kind of thing, pink and white. And it's kind of funny because later we figure out that from Sazed that this is spook attempting to seriously court her. And... You think last week put you in your high school, junior high feels, but man, did this put me in like the sneaking a love note to, to someone in like that era? And I was like, holy shit, man. God. Yeah, there are, there are very detailed, specific feelings for me that, that are tied to this that hurt and that just like I cringe thinking about. And one, one of which I'll be vague about it, I guess, but making a, mixtape style burn cd for somebody and getting completely <laughs> shut down for it it's this oh, the pain this is totally what pain feels like oh, yeah man. it wasn't good i would have shut myself down if i was in that receiving situation like you know i don't blame the person in the slightest it was you were just trying to show affection how you knew i barely knew how to do that it wasn't good but this brought up that feeling so you know that was fun. Mm, yeah. Our boy Spook needs to step up, step up his game a little bit. He's got some serious competition going forward. He's going to get yeah. heartbroken, and he's going to be the new big bad of the character of the book. I think. No, you think Spook's going to be the big bad? <laughs> oh man, perfect. No, but he's going to get funny. hurt. And he's going to be hurt so bad. He is the embodiment of every awkward teenage boy. So the entire nation will feel bad for it, I think. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. All right. With that, we'll move into the, the fun question to discuss from very sad spook boy to <laughs> Fuerkami. And, man, obviously we're introduced to this new theory and the way that Vin kind of pulls it out of says it is fun and interesting. But it's the art of the keepers. Lay on me your thoughts, your expectations, your queries, what's going through your head. <laughs> Where's your brain going with this? 
So I, I guess I'll just kind of lay out my stream of consciousness for this one. Yeah, pop off, bro. Um, my initial thought here is that seems pretty straightforward. It seems intuitive. I don't really have any questions about how this works. And then I actually start fucking thinking about it. And there are so many things I'm like questioning about it. Like, what are the restrictions on like the metal alloys? Are there, are they the same as allomancy in that you have to get a very specific alloy in order to, to use this? How many different attributes are available? What restrictions, like restrictions are a big thing. Like physically, do can you have more of, of a, like he has a whole bunch of bands. Is he restricted by the physical amount of a specific metal or is it per piece? Like what's that look like? Do they map the same as Elemancers do? Like is pewter strength for them or is it completely different? How does knowledge work here? Is that part of this sort of school of magic, if you want to call it that? Or is that a completely different thing that are specific to keepers? Like, I don't know. There, there are so many things that the more I think about it, the more I want to ask. And that's not fair to you because you've read this. But maybe it's fair to you because maybe they don't ever explain it. I don't know. I mean, I, I just kind of want your... So we obviously only get two medals, right, that are really kind of even remotely explained here. Three technically that Vin kind of pulls at and hints at. Uh, a little bit with kind of the glasses comment, but it is a completely new magic system, you know, and it kind of feels to your point like it it feels like it borrows a little bit from Alamancy, but doesn't it's not direct, which is interesting. Right. What are the three specifically? Well, we I don't think we get the specific metals, but you can maybe assume the metals based we, on the abilities. We get that he has iron bands. Yep. We know he has a bunch of different metal earrings. I don't remember what he has in his glasses. So it's less that, right? The glasses aren't for storing metal. So what's the point you're bringing up? The insinuation with the glasses is that Sazed was storing sight, and so he uh, enhanced his sight with glasses. Gotcha. Okay. So, yeah, during yeah, the period yeah. in which he was wearing... Okay, yeah. And so, you were going the other way, like he was using the glasses as a focus. Oh, no, sorry. no. I'm thinking the other way. I'm thinking, okay, so what we know is that we know that there are three different things that we've heard of stored before. You know, speed. the sort of... Yep, speed, sight, and memories, knowledge, right? Yeah. Or the three that we know so far, so... Was strength one, though? I feel like I that might have been mentioned... That- yeah, I think it might have been mentioned as well. Yeah, it, it was mentioned in it was mentioned in a logbook in this section of the Lord Ruler's logbook. Yeah, yeah. that Vin yep. reads. Yep, 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 yep. It's mentioned that they look weak and then wake they were up store, They were storing strength and yep. resting for an hour. Right. Yeah, which you know is an interesting concept. So. You know, Fuercami seems to have some interesting and different rules. They yeah. also don't burn the metal, right? Like, that's in and of itself very different. They don't eat it. They don't burn it. So, I was trying to recall or, like, map this to 
D&D terms, but I was also like not thinking that hard on it. And I know there's a connection here, but I guess it's almost like an alchemist in that they're, they're storing their magic in items that can be then expelled later as opposed to like a wizard that just has a store of magic. Right. Right. But there are so many, so many exceptions to that sort of mapping that I don't know. I might have more luck trying to map it to, to Diablo three classes, like honestly, because of the mana I, system involved. I realize that I've been saying Fuer Kemi. It's Feru Kemi. I just spelt it wrong on the sheet the one time that I put it on here. So the, the interesting thing about that is the first mention of it is uh, hyphenated across two different lines in the book. In mm-hmm. our copy of it, at least. So it's hard to, it was hard for me to like really grasp how to pronounce it. That makes sense. I don't know. We're going to definitely talk about this more. But following that up, says it also talks about both Rashek, the leader of the Lord Rulers Pac-Man, and the terrorist religion of which is mentioned being completely removed from the face of the earth and destroyed by the Lord Ruler and his actions. Why do you think the Lord Ruler would want to bury the terrorist re- religion that propped him up in the first place? I think because of the connection to knowledge and history that they have, like any sort of slight or dishonesty that got him to where he is now would be remembered. And any possibility of his secrets getting out could mean his undoing going forward. So I think that's part of it because he calls himself a, a fraud in the, in the logbook. When he's talking about the sort of animosity between him and the terrorism. So he calls himself a fraud, which leads me to believe that they know what he is, whatever the slight was, whatever the, ah, whatever he feigned in order to get to where he is was known by them. So he saw it as a means of protection to try to exterminate them. Means of protection of his power. Of himself. Yeah, his power, his position, his whatever. Okay. All right. I just realized that this should be a prediction, so I'm making it a prediction. Look at that. Welcome. I assumed it was. Yeah, I I didn't have it marked as such, but it should have been. So, haha, interesting, fun. There's also a little backstory here that Sazed pours out uh, relating to our other characters. These folks are vin's friends now and i like that little revelation and realization that she hasn't even tried to talk with them or like communicate with them normally as opposed to just survive as she does and i the fact that that shocks vin is is interesting any of these like small moments that are shared about the characters these like quick sentences that you found particularly interesting i mean overall just from the perspective of vin it's almost charming how innocent mm-hmm. she seemed in in this moment. Like it, it's not like she was intentionally shutting anyone out. It's just that she never really understood what it meant to be friends with somebody. So she was closed off by nature, both internally and externally. Like she wasn't letting anybody in. She wasn't letting anything from herself out. Like she was shut down, and that's slowly been eroding to the point where she's finally realizing that she has friends. And that happened basically out of proximity, not because she's been reciprocating anything. So, but it's, 
That's kind of a sad way of putting it. it but that's what it is, right? But I don't know. I think everyone else thinks that they're friends with Vin, but Vin's realizing that like she hasn't put much in. Like they see something in her, but she hasn't realized. What she, I don't know if that's true. Well, they see a charming young girl of whom has struggled to survive and is now being introduced to the larger world. So they're placing a ton of faith in her to like work through it so that she can become you know, a better person. They're like father figures, but like, like a close friend. I think they would, especially with the way that this section ends with kind of the okay. drinking and hanging out. Yeah. It feels Maybe. like they that's are fair. friends. Maybe that's fair. I don't know. I just, I just feel like she is realizing that she's trusted, not because of merit, just be, how do I describe this? And how do I delineate between, friendship and trusted coworker <laughs> being um, worthy yeah like, like there's a line somewhere between the two hmm. and she's somewhere around that line and she's finally understanding that she cross it sure yeah yeah and maybe that's the line that she's experiencing i think you're right on that mark that she hasn't even known what a friend really is like her closest thing were was you know people in the beginning of the story of whom were still kind of mean to her very mean in some cases but she is kind of in that she feels like she's probably in that warm spot between like oh yeah we're you are a qualified <laughs> compatriot not a friend and the other people meanwhile are like oh no we, we're like we're trying to bring you in and like we want you to understand what like normal people are like and it's just interesting and i guess the point is a, a point of separation here too is like a thieving group is different than a typical employer i think because there's a, a natural sense of camaraderie around your like mission and goal and that kind of stuff so it's like faux french i don't know if this doesn't feel this isn't no no but like a, the thieving groups that she's been a part of have been oh yes yeah the previous ones for sure yeah this is not yeah a typical thieving crew. Fair point. I'm thinking more the stereotypical thieving crew in fiction at large. Gotcha. But to your point, I guess you're right that a lot of the thieving crews have not been this way. That she's been a part of at the very least. Right. Like the one sense. person that she might have called a friend betrayed her right away in the story. Right. Yeah. No doubt. So she then proceeds to have one of these conversations with one of the people, you know, one of these people that she realizes that she can be friends with and start to have a deeper understanding of. She has this conversation with Doxon, and it is a sad conversation, but it and it really also adds to the plight of the Scott, reinforces the plight as we've come to understand them. But the story of Doxon is so intentionally similar to what we got about the story on Trusting's plantation that it, it almost creates this world in which and we know this because of kind of the way the chapters start to explain this and as it's been explained to us so far, but like the occurrence that we see in the beginning is not uncommon. The experience of Dachshund is not an uncommon experience on plantations, and he was treated well compared to a number of other ska by his noble man, noble manager, you know, it just it's bad. It's <clears throat> man. But he makes a, a very solid assertion about the fact that all noblemen are like that. And it feels as though this kind there's an error of correctness, but Vin fights back on that perspective because of her experience at the balls. Where do you land in the conversation? Who do you think is kind of right? That's an impossible question. Really? Is it? 
I truly, I, I think it is because there are too many assumptions that we have to make in order to make that answer or to, in order to get an answer there. Just, I, I guess, hear me out through all of this. I, I think it's hard to make an argument that they're being duplicitous in any sort of way based on like Vin's experience with them at balls and at parties and stuff. And they're seeming nice. And then Dachshund is talking about how fucking evil they are and how all of them are like this just at their core. And I, I think the problem is that they have been taught for generations and centuries that the ska are not equals. They're not even necessarily the same species. Ellen kind of seems to be at the cutting edge of progressive by questioning the idea that the ska could be intelligent on like a, a sentient level to a certain degree. Like if that's the belief that, that dominates the ruling class, the noblemen and the lords, like I don't think we can necessarily call them morally good for mistreating the ska, but I don't think we can really call them evil for it either. I don't know about that. And and here's the the counter argument that I have. I understand exactly where we're coming from. And I think we even get some context that and lends a little bit more. I obviously the point that I really wanted to point out here is saying like all people is not inclusive. And that's kind of Vin's point here too, right? Like that's almost never reality. All 100% is almost never a, a certain reality. It's almost never all or nothing, right? That's like one of the things that you learn as an adult is like, stop using the word all, everything, nothing, zero. Like things don't work that way. There's always a partiality to things. So that's kind of the first non sequitur with Dachshund's argument. But the other part of this that is important to acknowledge, and Ellen brings this up, is like a third of noblemen are like this. The behavior is still morally reprehensible, right? And it is a bad thing to murder someone however there is that interesting added layer of the the lord so the assumption that we're making is that no one ever tries to none of the noblemen try to communicate with ska we are predominantly provided though with ska perspectives throughout this novel and so we know that they're intelligent if we were only reading it from the noblemen maybe it might be different but the fact that we know that they are intelligent, we can read this as readers as morally reprehensible, right? As people. Right. No, so I completely agree thing. with that. Yes. Continue. Sorry. Okay. So to your point, though, the noblemen are really the ones that are having trouble. Well, they aren't having trouble. They've seen it this way for centuries. And so they don't believe there's no part of them that believes that it needs to change outside of, like you said, the cutting edge of progressive, which is someone like Ellen. And that's really what might be pushing it. However, we know that they are morally, they're morally bad people from the perspective of any ska, not unanimously, but in general. So this is kind of, this is the argument. This is the conversation. It's no, you can't point and say that they're all bad because not all of them are bad. You definitely need to change the system because not all of them are good either. Matter of fact, a third of them are really bad. Right. So yeah. you brought up... <clears throat> I, I guess my point entirely lies in one of the last things you said was from the perspective of the ska. And I, I agree with you entirely. Like none of them are morally good people from the perspective of the ska. But looking at it from the perspective of the noble people, if they don't 
have the knowledge to truly understand that they're oppressing intelligent people. And, and yeah, I would argue they're not trying to understand that they're repressing intelligent people. What materials do they really have in order to expand their understanding, though? Other than, like, actually going down and talking to all of them. Like, that's yeah, obviously right. they could do. But the very basic one, which is human communication. Like, <laughs> but, but, I mean, but I, I guess that's the thing, too. I don't think they're taught that they're the same species. So is it human communication if just because you're taught something doesn't make it real, though, doesn't make it true. You know, like I, I agree. But if it's that ingrained, can you be blamed for can you personally be blamed for something that is so wrongly ingrained into several generations in front of you going downward? I don't think you're right for it. I don't think you can be morally blamed for it, though. I think you definitely can if you're a perpetrator. I don't know. I don't know about that. If you're presented with the opposition and you have the opportunity to face it and change your ways because suddenly you're presented with something different that you didn't ever have before that and you ignore it. Yeah, absolutely. You're repre- like. You, you can be held accountable for that. But if you've never been, if, if you've never been presented with anything counter to what you've been taught, I don't know if you can morally be held accountable for upholding those values. If you don't, if you don't know there's an alternative, because as far as I can tell, most of the noble people don't actually understand that there's the possibility that the ska are being like, that the, the ska are are somebody intelligent that so, they're that they're subjugated from the previous week's reading there is a bit of conversation that happens around books banned books and their availability right the final empire does not ban books because that actually draws attention to them instead they just let them kind of toil into obscurity because no one's seeking it I think the information, the conversation has been there. The books that Ellen are reading, Ellen is reading are old. They're old books by by most standards. So I, I think the conversation, the knowledge has always been there. The question has always been there. But no one's taken action on it because nothing – they're in the advantageous position. Why would they question the advantage? You know, like I guess I, guess I have a tough if, time with that. Clearly a bad thing and they clearly have access to it and they're clearly raping and murdering Things that they don't believe are people, but not believing that they're people is not a, you know, it's not a, it's not it a doesn't, good. No, it doesn't make them good. A, I don't think there's anything here that makes them good. But we don't have any material differences. That's the other part of this. We don't have any material differences between the two other species that, in quotes. Other than the fact that they've been taught that they're not intelligent. That, it, yes, they've been taught that they're not intelligent does not mean that we don't have this was kind of the conversation that's had earlier right is that there's no material difference between the two I, yeah that's true of, that's true so just because you're taught doesn't mean that you can't explore and figure it out on your own that's from a an omniscient perspective we know that there's no material difference but they've never been shown that no. there's no material difference right the scar aware of it and it's been written about that <laughs> it was in the book that's my point that's been suppressed and not distributed and intentionally not taught to people 
Well, yeah. I mean, it's not as though information is freely shared, but at the same time, they don't ban books because that draws more attention to it, which is a commentary on ban books. But like, but that's a commentary on the Lord Ruler and disseminating information. Like the information technically exists and can be found, but I don't think you can blame somebody for not intentionally seeking out information that counters what they've been taught their entire life. Oh man, I think that should be a, a life goal of everyone. You should it always should be. Seek out the I agree. It yeah. should be, but I don't think you can be held to the standard of evil as if you were aware of the alternatives. Well, Unless you're perpetrating something that is, that is so tough. I don't agree with that at all. I like, if you don't know that you can look out for something that is counter to what you believe, like, yes, it exists, but you're not aware of it and you're not aware that you can look out for it and you are going by what you've been taught your entire life. Are you perpetrating something? Are, are you evil for perpetrating something that's evil? If you're not aware that it's evil. Yeah. It's still evil whether or not you know it is. It's evil. Are you evil? I, I agree. Well, that it depends on perspective. Exactly. Which is what... Well, I know, but what I'm saying is that we are allowed to have a perspective on this story, PJ. Okay. okay. And, like, that's the I, important part uh, here yes. is that... Okay. And we also know that... you. So, that was a very amorphous point, of which I do agree with the amorphous point that you're making. However, we know that... The noblemen have access to other lanes of information. It does exist. It true, like, we know that these books exist. They've gone by, they're hidden under other titles sometimes. They're less circulated. They're not reproduced often. They're everything but banning, basically. But the knowledge exists. There are a couple of noblelings that are meeting up to talk about the different books, right? Like, we've got five characters here that are chatting about them. And one of them calls it basically a snooze fest, says it's boring, says it's heavy. And, like... I think that shows the indifference that these people have mm -hmm. to to learning anything or trying to change their position. I think often the other part of this is that, like, when you have power, you're reluctant to give it up. That's just the nature of power. And right. they're third on the food chain, basically, with obligators in the way between them and the Lord Ruler. So, yeah, I think we're basically on the same page. Yeah, I just want to make sure that we're clearly delineating that just because you own slaves and you didn't know that there was an alternative, it's not a good thing. Because no, that's where I, that lane, yeah. that's where that train of yeah. thought was going. And I was like, no, that's not. Yes, I I am yeah. with you. I agree entirely. I just, yeah. Because like them murdering people is still not a good thing from their perspective, especially since there is nothing really to delineate the quote species quote. You know, like there's no... The only thing that they can point to between the two, seemingly, is the ability to reproduce more, which could be a thing, maybe. And even that doesn't feel really clear. It's kind of hearsay. And the alimantic replication and really alimantic, latent alimantic abilities is really the only thing. And I feel like we could probably explain that as genetic fairly easily because it is inherited. So it feels more like a gene thing, not like a species thing. But they don't know that. They don't understand that. So that's, you know, we can at the very least be like, ah, yes, this is the magic beans thing. But it, I mean, it's good conversation. That's also why I like <laughs> reading as much as I do is because it does bring these things to the forefront. That's the reason that you read in general is to like a 
challenger ideals, but also like posit other things that you might not consider. I agree entirely. We're going to move into chapter 23. We start, of course, with the log book here from our Lord Ruler. I sleep but a few hours each night. We must press forward, traveling as much as we can each day. But when I finally lie down, I find sleep elusive. The same thoughts that trouble me during the day are only compounded by the stillness of night. And above it all, I hear the thumping sounds from above, the pulsings from the mountains, drawing me closer with each beat. So, thoughts? Any thoughts on the the logbook here? I mean, that just kind of feels like my sleep habits, you know? As mentioned, we eventually need to get the Lord Ruler's perspective and pooping habits and uh, kind of his, his wake-up habits. We're getting a sleep routine now. We need we need the alarm clock going off. Exactly. Routine. No. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I know how much it sucks to not be able to sleep at night. I know you do, yeah. too. Right. We were both terrible insomniacs, which is... I've just turned into workaholism, so that's fine. <laughs> and alcoholism. I mean, only on no, recording days. Not, so Yeah, that's not a slight on alcoholics. I don't have a backup way of <laughs> getting myself out of this. You don't have a way this. out of that one. No worries. I'll get you out of stepping in that ship. This is like a traversing kind of chapter, right? Like, this is a or a traversing like logbook entry here. There's not like a ton of, a ton of meat to this or anything, but it does give us a sense of that pulsing sound again, that it, the pulse in the distance of this thing in the mountains and the terrace mountains that they're kind of chasing after. And, you know, we then cut to a ball. I think this is the house Hastings ball as it had been discussed. I, I'm not a hundred percent sure if that's even clarified. It sounds this. right. I, I, it was suppo- like the next big ball was supposed to be the house hasting ball. And I assume that was this one, but there have been, there's been some time passage again here, some time slippage. So oh, it's, it's that's a good point. Clear. There. So there, there might've been a minor, this might be a more minor ball, but it feels like it's a bigger ball. So uh, unclear anyway. And it is kind of been discussed here among a, a variety of different characters that we get at the ball that the seeds of discord have been, planted firmly among the noble houses and Vin just kind of gets to witness it and thinks that Kelsier would be very proud of the work that he's done here. Yeah. It's really kind of satisfying seeing all of that conversation play out after mm-hmm. Kelsier's like careful puppet mastery from last week. It's just, it, it's a lot of fun to see it from this perspective of the sort of gossip from the other side yeah to see that gossip and to kind of get that perspective it's really interesting you know and to i i think that this is such a clever way of weaving in this part of the the heist as it were right to have this additional like lens to see the results of these actions so yeah we also see an obligator up close and personal this week as close as we've really gotten to one since the very beginning of the book witnessing something as simple as a promise to attend a sporting game with other houses i think it's interesting that they're effectively like certifying it under god that they're going to do this as though this religion is much less religious from our understanding and more like bureaucracy yeah okay so i think we can kind of flip this a little bit Especially with this being a theocracy, as we know, yeah. we can say the same, we, we can get the, res, the same result by saying mm-hmm. that the business is less bureaucratic and more religious. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, it, it just depends on how you kind of frame your point of view 
between religion and business in this society, I guess. But I think you get mm-hmm. the same result either way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's actually almost a better way of putting it because it makes it a little bit more clear that despite religion, like business has infected feels wrong, but it, it, it is inside of the religion. It has made its way into the religion and is another angle in which the Lord ruler has control basically through the economy and like basically has a legion of lawyers kind of, which is fascinating. Yeah, for sure. It's a weird cross between priests and lawyers that these mm-hmm. obligators are. Yeah. Right. No, like it, marriage, like divorce. notary priests. Yeah. Right. Which is wild. Very odd, but, like, it makes sense inside of the world. Like, it's so strange. It is bizarre how so much of this just makes perfect sense and fits so well together. Like, perfect puzzle pieces. We get a really kind of vile perspective here from the other noblemen and women who reflect on their kind of disgusted nature of the Scott thieving crews, not realizing that there's this one right under their noses, Vin being right there. And I guess it just goes to kind of show that separation of classes is far greater than Vin thought. Are these people evil? Are they evil people? They're doing evil things, but does that extend to their core? Like, are are they at their core evil people because of what they're doing if their intentions aren't? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that's a good question. Right. But then we get to a conversation with Lady Shan where she seems to recruit Vin, believing her soothing would be enough to push her into service. But more importantly, there's the question of what Shan knows about those texts of Ellen's and what she plans on doing with that information. What do you think? Shan is so slippery compared to a lot of the other noblemen, noble ladies. I can't help but think there's some sort of trap for our dear Vin here. Like, For example, if Shan already knows exactly what's in these books, this is a setup to basically test Vin to give her the correct information of what's in these books. Or if she's, she knows vaguely what's in these books, it's still, it could still be a trap in that she's getting Vin to give more specific information. And if she says, oh, it was nothing suspicious it was completely innocuous that's still like a a failure in that sort of test so i'm not trusting of lady shan in general yeah i mean she's definitely done nothing to like provide trust in any context you know like she's not done anything to give us a reason to believe her or trust her she's definitely been nothing but sketchy and she's pushing actively on vin's emotions So it seems very clear that she's at the very least, she thinks that she can be both like emotionally abusive and manipulative in, in this situation. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, she's very aware of what's in Ellen's books or at the very least aware of what they could be. And as such is treating them is using basically Vin to kind of burn her you know, potentially, I should say, to burn her in case she's discovered doing this and going through, you know, that way she can be held accountable and Shan can't, you know, kind of like a pawn in any sort of scheme. And the the whole thing has this like air of air of badness around it. <laughs> it's it's not going to be a good time. Shan, Shan Ariel, not a good lady, not a good lady. Not so at all. 
your prediction here is that basically, if we're to put a prediction on this, is that Shan does know what those texts are and is going to use this as a sort of purity test for Vin. Yeah, either... I, I think there there are two sort of grades to that, but I think both of them can boil down to that that prediction. She is either explicitly aware of exactly what's on those pages and is waiting for Vin to tell her exactly what she already knows or knows that they're vaguely suspicious and banned to a certain extent, but doesn't know exactly what's on the pages and it is waiting for Vin to confirm that. So yeah, either way she knows of transgressions from her perspective and is waiting for Vin to confirm them waiting for that, that nail in the coffin of sorts. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course she does go to meet and chat with Ellen and he's nothing if not a gentleman, you know, he's obviously kind of encouraged by Shan to go, you know, find the books and whatnot, but she decides to go and meet and chat with Ellen and he's nothing if not a gentleman this time around. He explains Mm -hmm. that he did sleep with a Scott woman, but that his father had forced him to become a man and wow, what an awful fucking ritual that must be like for him to have experienced. Ah, yes, sleep with this person and then we'll murder them. That won't scar you for life at all. Not at all. Not whatsoever. Yeah, that's super fucked. It's so fucked. Yeah, it's definitely no bueno. It it sucks because it makes it feel like it's this rite of passage and that there's a degree of truth to what like Doxon and Kelsey are saying that like they're all bad but it's like no they aren't all bad and and that's the argument that Vin is arguing is there there are shades of gray here that we need to consider versus just killing them all versus just fighting against them all right so it's an interesting little sticking point the honest conversation between Ellen and Vin around the sky is I think like a, a relatively revelatory one Ellen seems to lack faith in the Lord Ruler's teaching as he's hinted at before but he has almost a curious like sympathetic tone to him as well as he's talking about the ska maybe this is another drink for me i don't know i don't think there's anything confirmed here but i was pretty adamant that he was lying about his his feelings (laughs) so i'll take it i'll take a drink here i'm pretty confident in his actual compat not necessarily compassion i don't think that's necessary like that might be true but sympathy i think sympathy is the right term yeah i would say i feel like sympathy is definitely closer to it for sure that makes compassion might exist but that's not what i'm looking for right right it's you know and that's definitely not exactly what's highlighted in this moment so the handkerchief flirt of Ellen is pretty good, though, and brings kind of a smile to my face as, as he's making that comment about, oh, no, you keep it. And it's just great for Vin because she deserves a little something of her own, you know? Like, she's been through so much. And I really love the little line that's delivered here after they, they kind of have this split. Is that another handkerchief mistress? My, you've been busy. And it's like a perfect C-3PO joke. And I love Sazed for that. I like, I can't get it out of my head. It's either weird that you said that or entirely not weird that you said that. And I'm not sure which it is yet. I had almost the exact same thought regarding this being like a C-3PO joke. Was this an actual reference that I like subconsciously glazed over? 
was this entirely coincidental that we both came across that sort of uh connection i think it's coincidental okay it's one of those things so it's it's not a direct reference it's not a very clear like c3po said something adjacent to this it, it feels very coincidental but what's very interesting thinking about characters and writing characters often you'll like give characters dialogue rules so that they speak specific ways and often says it doesn't use a whole lot of contractions as you start to read as you like read his writing he very infrequently will ever use a contraction so it does he does deliver almost a little bit more robotically because of that okay and that makes him a very interesting gives him a very interesting voice and perspective and it feels similar to c3po in the way that it's so formal i think and is with, kind of like with a touch of felt. comedy once in a while yeah yeah exactly like oh dear <laughs> like you can imagine the the same kind of thing coming out of says its mouth right yeah so it, it definitely gives it that flavor i totally understand where you're coming from well uh, what'd you think because you, you mentioned c3po well it's true that's true <laughs> what'd you what'd you think of ellen giving the handkerchief though the the sort of formal i thought it was like uh, that was bound to happen uh-huh. given the way that this was going forward and i still don't necessarily i am finding myself more and more trusting lord venture my eyes are like <laughs> behind my head right now. Like I'm half rolled back, <laughs> heavily rolling my eyes, but I'm not entirely trusting him, but I am more and more coming to like take his actions at face value. And with that context, it makes total sense that he'd actually do something grandiose like that. If we're going to call that grandiose. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I I still don't fucking trust him, but (laughs) you don't trust anyone, which I mean, you know, fair enough. Vin finally gets an excuse here to finally use her elementic powers again and follows Ellen up to his meeting with his friends in the tower, meeting with Teldin and Josties and a fifth voice that I don't think has ever given a name in addition to it's Ellen Teldin Josties. When I was reading the scene, I was trying to figure out who the fuck the fourth voice was. There's and five. Then the mysterious, right? Because there's the mysterious fifth voice that is not given a name. But they're like, who the fuck was the other person's name? I tried so hard rereading it so many times. Yeah, I'm not, to work I'm not that sure. Shit out, Josties. Ellen Teldin. Ellen Teldin. Redevelopment's work is better, but that's actually one of the writers. Ellen fifth voice yeah see that's the problem is that it's just like fifth voice <laughs> what the fuck is fifth voice unless it's talking like it's considering the guards i guess as two of the no because that would put us up to six voices anyway i quit <laughs> the voice the guards are clones and they have the, the same guards voice. could be could be a guard talking to himself pretending with to himself be about a shift yes oh can you believe that they're having us work in <laughs> double shift tonight i know i don't even think that they're gonna need us i hear that they're sending all the people out from the garrison i know i heard that too weird it's like we share a brain we're cutting costs all of your <laughs> partnerships will become single people but i will urge you to speak as if you're both parties to make keep up the audible appearances that We've still got the same amount of people on staff. I hope you understand. 
So they're debating the reading of the week, kind of like <laughs> we have been, when Kelsier shows up saying he's been following them as well. Of course, he doesn't actually show up in the room, but he's talking with kind of Vin outside. They agree to meet up back up at Clubs' shop, and that's where this chapter kind of ends. It's just quick. It's kind of a quick, abrupt ending. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun having Kelsier kind of interrupt Vin from the rooftop. Yeah. It's like, oh, shit, I'm caught. But it's like, nah, it's not that big of a deal. She <laughs> like, almost falls off, right? Yes, like, I think stall- so. I think startles are pretty... Something fierce. Yeah. Yeah, she definitely has to adjust. But yeah, it's uh, it's definitely an interesting way to end it, especially considering we knew how far away he and clubs were previously. And so this is a great way to communicate that, you know, they're back in town and that, you know, the time has passed effectively. So... With that, we move into our final chapter of the week, chapter 24. The logbook starts with, In the end, I must trust in myself. I've seen men who have beaten from themselves the ability to recognize truth and goodness, and I do not think I am one of them. I can still see the tears in a young child's eyes and feel pain at his suffering. If I ever lose this, then I will know that I have passed beyond hope of redemption. I think that this is interesting especially considering it feels like the Lord Ruler has specifically lost this, you know? Yeah, there's a whole lot of, like, a lot of these passages are from pre-ascension, and they're clearly a very driven person, but there are some that are not, and they delve into a little bit of crazy, a little bit of just manic writing, And it's concerning but interesting to read, you know? Yeah, yeah. This is him trying to steady himself, to your point of, like, the the manic writing versus the non-manic writing. This one isn't, I wouldn't call it overtly manic. This is him trying to steady himself and trying to point out to being able to rely on himself and sort of his good moral code, you know. And if he ever loses that, he will have passed beyond redemption, So it's interesting. We proceed from that very deep, reflective chapter on reliability and and goodness into a really fun, happy chapter. This I, I love this chapter a lot. It's got a nice, warm, kind of homely feeling to it. It just it's humorous. The gang is all together again. There's drinking again, having a good time. It feels very optimistic. And I don't know. I love it. Any favorite jokes? I particularly like hams about the vest and like tearing off the sleeves. Yeah, I guess mine kind of plays off of that. I think it's like right after that comment. When Kelsier asks for a few physical representations of the concept of effort to pay for a warehouse. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a great one. Him, like, specifying the form of money. Money is just, like, effort verified, and it's like, Jesus Christ. It, it is that exchange, fucking love ham, right? But that joke mm-hmm. is, like, the personification of if I were a really big philosophy nerd, and, like, everything was like that. Like, ham is the... I feel like ham is a cartoonish rendition of myself in that way, <laughs> if that makes I feel, sense. I feel like that argument from ham makes the most sense in contemporary U.S., now where oh, no, paper money isn't actually based in anything well it was always an exchange it was always an exchange of labor so like it, it, it all but it was also based in something physical as opposed to an amorphous representation of something that 
no physical anything could it wasn't rooted in anything other than word it was still rooted in word often i mean the point being is like you didn't carry around the gold coins for your dollar you know no one did that it was still it was a promissory note all of all money is is a promissory note for gold to be exchanged which is a token of labor like it's ultimately i think the joke still stands regardless of it does that's true of being attached to a currency so but yeah i I mean yeah it's good it's good how do you feel i mean do you like this chapter also we should drink because it's a chapter where there's a shit ton of drinking yeah we should Mm. cheers cheers this has like a lot of revelry in it which i think is great i think that i really also enjoy the slang exchange that we get between uh kelsier and spook as well i think it's referred to as like an eastern dialect if i can't remember properly but i think it's an eastern dialect as though he'd kind of pick it up as though kelsier had picked it up after like you know saying like his name wasn't catchy and everything else just to make spook feel more comfortable with everyone as well as like how easily ham slips into it and even like breeze gives it a shot it's just it's such a such a nice lighthearted moment especially for something that could be viewed as really confusing well it was confusing do we know if kelsier is actually able to pick it up like we know later on that dachshund is just kind of spewing nonsense and they call him out for it but do we know if anybody else was actually saying anything into or like in- so Here's an interesting thing that I did this week, and I wasn't originally going to do this, but I decided that I wanted to kind of supplement. There are annotations that are not uh, spoiler forward on this book and this series as a whole. The entire Mistborn series there are annotations for, and there are chapter-by-chapter annotations. So I, I found the one that relates to this chapter, and Brandon actually has a translated version of the conversation between interesting. and Kelsier. Yeah. And Kelsier does understand. It is completely intended that he understands. Okay. Gotcha. So Good to Breeze know. definitely doesn't. That's the point of that. And Ham obviously also kind of latches into it properly, but because he gets kind of, you know, nod response and they're having a three-way conversation. But uh, I'm sorry, right Doxon. Doxon being know. the one that doesn't? Yes. Doxon is the one who tries to speak it, but doesn't understand. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's Doxon. Gotcha. So, yes, yeah, he's just making it up, which even like spook remarks in regular tongue, which is really funny, kind of like to punchline the whole joke. He speaks his yeah. best common, we'll call it. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's just a fun little exchange. So I, I think that this is such a great chapter as well, because it also shows how Vin has really changed again. The last time that she was in the shop, she was skeptical and a massively different person, like listening through the door, you know, wasn't the knowing of this. This is the present. And, you know, capiche ever wasn't the wish of the having the have to have you know yeah yep having the have knowing of this we're talking about vin right yep yeah vin's (laughs) growth in in this place okay i think what was the coolest part about that was that vin herself realizes that she's grown here she acknowledges her own progression through this this team and she points out that she still hears Reen sometimes and uses that as a, an anchor to be an ounce outsider. But we know for a fact that everybody has some sort of baggage. And this is just kind of her doing what she can to not fall into 
too much comfort with this group. When, as far as we can all tell, she's kind of completely integrated into it. It is so great that she has integrated into that to this point. Like, it is just kind of a wonderful moment for her to, you know, show this progression, to kind of embody it, and to maybe not fully recognize, but at least reckon with it, you know? So that's interesting. I think Breeze's trepidation here of being handed the reins of the army to be an interesting and fair one on his part. He's never done anything like this. What do you make of his thought of giving Breeze, Kelsier's thought of giving Breeze a turn at general? I think from an ability perspective, this makes total sense. But like from a personality perspective, he's going to be the general that like gets his own giant tent. And somehow has an air conditioner as they march across the fucking countryside. Like, I think he will be effective. I don't think he'll be a good leader. Yeah, that'll be interesting. It's an interesting point. It's kind of like the sort of, I love the, I love the tent idea, but I, I think that the, or rather the air conditioning, it's kind of not a mirrored inverse, but it feels similar to your read and judgment on Kelsier being the like leader post-rebellion there there's this obviously there's the air of the air conditioning and the prim and proper man in charge of the you know that shouldn't be in charge of the army being in charge of the army but at the same time it feels as though your other judgment outside of that is you know mm-hmm. similarly mismatched for the job as Kelsier would be mismatched to be the man in the regal chair yeah although i would argue Kelsier is probably better in the regal chair than breezes maybe as a general i don't know how do you feel about that yeah probably all right fair enough just curious it's one of those things ham brings up that most of the crew are concerned about kelsier and the 11th medal as well as the power that he's amassed through you know kind of the recruitment through a number of different components here they think that it's gotten to his head that he has become this sort of holy man and i don't know what what what's your take on it What's your, what are your thoughts on him bringing this up? I don't think that's entirely inaccurate. I think taking it to the level of holy extreme, but he definitely has a sense of self-importance and he needs to, he has to have that sense of self-importance in order to like first gain recruits and second, inspire some sort of confidence in the in the recruits that he has already gained like there needs to be that arrogance for lack of a better uh, lack of a better term in order to mm-hmm. maintain that level of clout so sure no i think that's i think that's definitely true i think that there is interestingly enough when it comes to someone who embodies that sort of leadership persona, I think you put it well, there is that level of arrogance that's necessary in order to, you know, maintain, to hold the, again, I keep using the word reins inside this episode, but to really like take hold of that and make sure that they're steering, you know, the conversation in whatever way is necessary towards the end goal that, you know, they're seeking, which in this case is the destruction of the final empire. So maybe some of it is going to Kelsier's head, but I'm not sure it is to the degree that they're suggesting. Yeah, I'd agree with that assumption. So Ham and Vin 
head out to the garrison. And I, I think that this is kind of a great lesson in the power of pewter. We kind of get a little bit of what pewter can be or could be. We don't necessarily see it strictly in use, but we get a lot of conversation around what it could be including an explanation of an effect that we haven't heard before called pewter dragging, which is using pewter for an extended period of time and the impact that it has on the body, the the wear that it puts on the body. Right. This is the kind of information that Vin desperately needs. This is more in-depth training on each metal, like we've talked about from the beginning. And it is fucking insane to me that Kelsier doesn't seem to put that much importance on these kind of lessons. You know? Like, he seems uncharacteristically like an old curmudgeon about these lessons. Based on what we've, like, seen from him about it. Like, th- this is a necessity because he's busy, but he should be uh-huh. able to give her all she needs. And I don't know if it's because he wants to be good enough to just trainer and everything or if he assumes that mistborn in general can't be so naturally and granularly in tuned with specific metals that these in-depth lessons with uh, specific mistings are useful at all i don't know i'd like to learn though it feels like it is the latter Right. Where he believes that they're going to be able to train better. Another thing that I would just throw back and add into the conversation is Kelsier is relatively new to his Mistborn capabilities, his Mistborn abilities. He's been gone for three years, I think, from the last time that they saw him until he re-arrives in Luthadel. And we're six months, I think, right now past that point and past the point of the beginning of the story, basically. But most of these mistings have had their powers most of their entire lives. And so they have a deeper understanding, not only because it's their only metal, but because they've been using it longer. Right. So I think there's an interesting combination of knowledge there. So I, I think arguably both of your answers are correct. He doesn't have the time, you know, and this is something that's been specified as to why he did it in the first place is he doesn't have the time to put in. And maybe that's, again, a portion of arrogance and and whatnot. But on top of that, I think that there is he's made aware of an obvious benefit from training from everyone individually. And, you know, it's great for us as benefactors of this information, receiving it through these different, you know, lens of seeing the training through different people. But it also feels like it's making Vin just a strictly better Mistborn than Kelsier is. And the Kelsier chapters are slowly dwindling as we've been moving through the book as well. Like we're getting less Kelsier and more Vin, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely as true. We progress as well. Yeah. I think you've got a great read on that. A great dial in of like, man, it feels like Kelsier is almost missing the, the forest for the trees. Exactly. Yeah. He's on the wrong side of a cap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Our chapter ends. Our chapter ends with a surprise as ham approaches the garrison men. The rebellion has attacked and the Coloss are, not going to be able to make it in time to save those garrison men that are north near where the caves are. So the garrison men from the city of Luthadel are going to be forced to head out to support that smaller northern garrison. Of course, Ham and Vin act shocked for obvious reasons, but more importantly, they're shocked that this attack happened in the first place. This is not a part of the plan. What will the consequences of Yin's action here be? And I've flagged this, just this last part as a prediction. 
I assume that the crew will infiltrate the garrison. Kelsier and Vin will probably scout ahead, trying to do what they can to assist the rebellion before this local garrison gets there. If this was an intentional attack by Eden, I think he will be sort of verbally dressed down and completely replaced as leader. Okay. It's kind of what I've got. All right. What do you think about, and, and this isn't a part of the prediction, but what do you think about this entire mo- like what's going on here in general? Like this is a crazy, totally against the plan. Why do you think he decided to do this? I don't know, man. I, I'm thinking it was an accidental. They got caught out or something. Like this was like they, they were strategically moving their army elsewhere and got caught. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So they got caught, basically. All yeah. right. Cool. This wasn't yeah. like and a again, inoffensive. This was a accidental defensive. Which is interesting because we know that it's hard to get the men out of the caves because they have to crawl through the three different entrances and whatnot. And like, that's a whole. You know, you say that. And now I remember that fact and I'm not changing my fucking guess. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I was just saying it feels like it would be intentional defense potentially because they were found out. I'm not trying to assuade your... No, no, I can get behind that. I just think maybe it was a more advantageous position to be set up somewhere else. So like, mm. all right, quickly, let's go over there. Sure. Okay. All right. We end this week's reading with a short Lord Ruler passage from the logbook. No man dies by my hand or command except that I wish there had been another way. Still, I kill them. Sometimes I wish that I weren't such a cursed realist. Yeah, so this starts to feel different from the previous writers of these passages. This feels odd. I don't know. Okay. Just odd? Not in line with what we heard from the lord ruler beforehand it feels darker more less less driven and more defensive of actions i guess it does feel very defensive i would definitely agree with that this has a tone that is shockingly different i i think not it's not completely different there are moments in the passage that have kind of similar moments of sort of direct that are directly communicating something like this is but this is definitely the most brutal of these kind of sections i don't think he's talked a whole lot about killing people and aggressive things of that nature previously so this no that i don't think so either cool so with that is this week's reading do you have anything else you want to bring up regarding this section that you don't think we hit Hmm. you know what no i feel like we hit basically everything we've got pj's predictions up next i'm just going to real quickly buzz through these again kind of like we have previously i'm not going to read the whole questions but we have the first question about do you think kelsier is a good choice for ruler what do you make of the the conversation effectively just talking about is kelsier a good choice your conversation that we've been having around this the whole time is he's not a great pick for leader he's much better at being the leader of a rebellion than he would be the leader of a society. So comparing those two, it's a great little pull out there. We've then got, uh, 
Sazed talking about Rashek, the leader of the Lord Ruler's Pac-Man and of the Terrace religion. Why do you think the Lord Ruler would want to bury the Terrace religion that propped him up in the first place? And your response was effectively that he's trying, he's burying this very intentionally for to prevent people from tracking him or like finding out any of the secrets that could be his undoing. Is that accurate? Yep, basically. Cool. We then get the conversation with Lady Shan about recruiting Vin and trying to get her to pull from the text of Elland. You said effectively that Shan is a lot slippier, more slippery. Jesus Christ. Slipper. Wow. Slippery. Slipperier. She's more slippery <laughs> than other noble ladies. And. <laughs> slip slippery or the worst so she's more slippery <laughs> than other noble ladies and she I give up on the word fine is really going to be testing <laughs> vin's alignment and that's really kind of what she's aiming for is that accurate right. okay yeah and then what will the consequence of yin's actions here be the last one that we just covered about sort of him losing his place as the leader if he led the attack otherwise the sort of kelsier vin needing to scout ahead and trying to do what they can to assist the rebellion. Sort of your call out. Does that sound good? Cool. All right. Question of the week. This week's question is favorite close call. So this one is kind of an interesting one because it's kind of left open-ended. And yeah, I guess we'll just probably switch every other here. But it's kind of open-ended because your definition of a close call might be different than others. So we're just going to bounce off these, and then we'll run with ours at the end. Cool. All right, so Storms from our Discord. This might go a smidge past a close call, but the ending of Gideon the Ninth. Skip forward 30 seconds if you don't want to hear about the ending of Gideon the Ninth, of which is, I will say, Storms did a good job of de-spoilering this as much as possible. So this is well done. In the final fight, it really seemed like everyone might actually die. A lot of supporting characters die throughout this book, too. Instead, one main character dies in a sense, but their consciousness is still available and the bad guy is defeated. So at the end of the day, the parts of the characters I care about are still there, so I guess it's a happy ending? <laughs> Question mark. So this is it, it really interesting, because I think it, it, it both isn't a close call, because it was kind of fun, but they're alive still or, like, accessible, I guess, which is interesting. So... Yeah, I don't know. That sounds interesting. I've getting the ninth is on my short list of very soon reads. I've heard enough about it, and it's been ranted enough about, and Pierre has that I read it. So it's a necessary thing at this point. So, all right. So from Artificer in the Walking Dead, when Glenn falls off the dumpster into a swarm of zombies in season six, episode three. I don't. I don't think I can speak to that. That was the last season sure that I watched. Sounds terrifying. That was the last season that I watched. Of which this moment was very misleading. Like it was. This season was billed as losing a major character. Like a major character was going to die, and this happened in season six, episode three, like the third episode in. And you're like, "Fuck! It's going to be Glenn. Fuck! It's going to be Glenn." And this felt like it's a close call because Glenn lives. So it just felt like this whole, the whole season was just playing up. Well, who are we going to lose? Who are we going to die? We don't know. And it was just, it was a moment for sure. Did, how much of the walking dead did you watch the first two seasons? Two, I think. 
Yeah, I feel like that's right. Yeah. Cool. All right. From Sophandrius the Howler, my favorite close call in recent memory takes place in episode three of Midnight Mass. Don't want to spoil anything if you haven't seen it, but I assume Crossland knows what I'm talking about. I definitely do, and I am such a fan of this that there isn't any way that I will touch what you've suggested in this context. I love episode three is one of my favorite episodes of TV ever. I think it is brilliantly plotted and absolutely wonderful there there is a dream of someday doing an a podcast of this in some capacity for coverage so i love midnight mm-hmm. Mass. yeah anyway great one yeah. good one sophandrius full show lex miraglia 10 when rick carl daryl were in shit spot and then rick bites the guy's ear off and goes berserk or soon after the cannibal place when about to get beheaded and Carol blows the place up. Or I was definitely worried about Tyrion after Oberyn blew the fight versus Mountain. Or a words of Radiance spoiler that neither of us are going to read. Or Victra, End of Golden Sun, Severo in Morningstar, Musting in Dark Age. All definitely had a bit had me for a bit. And there were definitely times in Dark Age when I was worried about Severo and Darrow, too. That's a whole lot of them. them. I was like, this is such a good list. Now mine are gone. (laughs) So, you know. You're just going to have to think about another one before we get to the end here. So let the record show. (laughs) Also, I apologize. I am so bad at reading out loud. Like, I'm not good at it. It is fair. So... There's the word of radiant spoiler was one that was properly spoiler tagged inside of the discord. So I didn't read it, but I have yet to read. I think we've talked about this before. I've yet to read the stormlight archive. It is very quickly approaching my, I must read this because of reasons, but so it's approaching the must read pile of, of books for me. And so I didn't want to read it. And so I put just a words of radiant spoiler that we are definitely not reading words of radiance is a book by Brandon Sanderson inside of the Cosmere. So that is why i don't know if you knew that or not i did not well now you do so with <laughs> that we go to tim pierce well i was going to say tier t pierso but here i am tim pearson man i'll start with all the bullets missing jules and vincent in pulp fiction it essentially changes jules's path whereas vincent continues down it and gets shot to death by butch carl from die hard the bad guy with blonde hair gets a chain wrapped around his neck by McLean, and he's left there hanging to death carl shows up after you think the action is done and powell saves john and holly's lives same sort of character trope in lethal weapon where murtaugh saves Riggs from gary Busey's character love all of those love the call out of all of the classic action movies here it's a great move good call those are all great close saves and pretty much <laughs> a lot of action movies are often determined by close calls. Like that is the tension that they're building. A lot of times is those narrow escapes for sure. We've got Ivana Sherlock when he jumps off the building, there's a couple of Greenbone saga that she mentioned as well, but we skip past those for the time being smiley face yeah yeah there's a couple with ivana that she had originally sent in greenboat saga has a number of great close calls that i want to acknowledge here at the very least as she had mentioned so but because she knows that we've been such hardcore advocates and because we have a couple of people in our discord reading through the series now she didn't want to spoil it for anyone so 
Team no hype. Team no hype. All right, PJ, do you have yours? Do you know what yours is? Or are you going to think about well, it? Well, mine was Victra at the end of Golden Sun. That's a great one. That's I honestly, the, but that was in the that. list of like fucking twenty that Lex put in. <laughs> so I don't know. Like I'm gonna steal it. <laughs> that one's mine because that's one of the ones that truly got me. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree Which, with that. Can we even say that? Fucking read Red Rising if you're at this point. If you were unaware, sure. yeah, absolutely. I think one of the mine. I'm gonna pick something that's not Red Rising. My favorite close call is the very beginning of the first law trilogy begins with logan nine fingers having a close call and it is brilliant it is literally within the first two pages and it made me immediately fall in love with the character and i'm still reading first law books like i love everything that the man has put out i just did a f- i am i'm just now finishing red country i've got less than 20 pages left in that sucker and then i'm done with it and i'm gonna take a brief break from first law then i'm gonna go into age of madness because i haven't read any of those yet and i'm very excited anyway yeah that's mine so very good so for next week's question i was thinking since we spent so little time talking about this in today's episode i wanted to maybe posit that what's your favorite moral debate that's brought up in a book <laughs> or yeah. series or piece of art yeah what's your favorite no, i moral love debate? It. i i absolutely love that yeah i think that's yeah. a good question we're not here we, we aren't going to be litigating your individual opinions on these things but feel free to share one of those interrogations it's always interesting and you know the purpose of writing is often to interrogate ignorance so mm-hmm. yeah cool yeah all right uh should we say present the question not any sort of argument yeah yeah present present the question and or the and or the argument so like a book might pose a question sometimes a book might make an argument though you know what i mean like it might not pose a question it might make the argument for something yeah that's fair so keep it simple keep it punchy let's put it that way it doesn't need to be the full now punchy moral argument not like fighty but (laughs) punchy you know it's different more different right yeah All right. With that, next week we are going to be reading chapters 25 through 28. I think we're down to like 60 or no, sorry, this is another 70 page week, but we are going, we're in the final third of the book, PJ. Holy shit. Jesus Christ, it went so fast. No joke. So chapters 25, 25 through 28. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you. Of course, Andrew and Tim. Switch your names up this time. <laughs> Welcome, Andrew. Sorry, Tim. For helping us keep our show's lights on, check out our show notes. They have links to basically anything that you want from us, be it websites, social media accounts, previous episodes at Patreon, fucking everything. It's all in one very convenient location. Yes, it is. And you can find literally everything you can find us on you can find all of our links to our various socials to recount those to you words whiskey pod on twitter and instagram words and whiskey pod on reddit because i'm a bastard words and whiskey show at gmail.com and patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey all of these links are available in our show notes as pj stated as well as on our website at words and whiskey dot show forward slash links beyond that spotify just added a new review function of which 
I can't claim to know how important it is yet, but I assume it will be very important to the way that Spotify recommends shows inside of their algorithm. Feel free to leave us a five-star review in any other show that you support, especially since it's a brand new system. It's only available on mobile right now. Uh, and, and for any show that you support and listen to through Spotify, make sure that you leave them that review because I'm sure in the future it will be great and impactful. It's our day one of realizing that this was available and we're at, I think, 17 reviews, which is great and fantastic nice. and awesome and very appreciative for everyone getting behind that so quickly. Like didn't even realize that it was a thing and all of a sudden mentioned it and, you know, it changed. So you can absolutely make an impact and this is much easier to it's much easier to leave a review through spotify than it is apple apple has all kinds of fucking steps that you have to go through this is one two click but apple still is the lord ruler of reviews so leave us one there too so with that if you haven't already entered into our instagram giveaway make sure that you do that on instagram check it out it's the giant giveaway post with the fun leather bound version of mistborn on it go check it out Beyond that, thank you guys so much for listening and for all the support. See you next week. Three, two, one.